0: a song of body, or more to a sweat on some sight. Bloody pearl or dirty spit, hot up for to show who gets eaten. Rig, body up, bow, bow, to breeze a lazy chick, and sway to Grig's good fiddling. Pine deep, thus a spot where stood by, thus they clap when I Mount Bonk, cheek up the lectern, bow, to say it's all good. <laughs> we gather wisdom, bins of dye, deeper, darker, as I get down sweat, highlights like my heart.
1: Welcome to a new episode of CalArts 24-700 Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Ziamba. You've been listening to a performance of the poem, Show, by Douglas Kearney, a Cal Arts alum and now an associate professor of creative writing at the University of Minnesota. I had a chance to catch up with Doug when he returned to Cal Arts in October as a guest artist for the Writing Now reading series. His seventh book, Show, had just been nominated for a National Book Award, so we chatted about the book, his poetry, performance, and teaching. And Since we were still in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, masks were required on campus, which is why he wore one during the course of this interview. Enjoy the conversation with Douglas Kearney. This is the first travel
0: for a reading I've done since the pandemic.
1: Well, welcome back. Things have changed a little bit. First of all, congratulations on your National Book Award nomination for poetry. Thank you. When did you first find out about the nomination, and mm-hmm. what was your reaction?
0: So the long list uh, nomination, I will say that I was, you know, waiting for the clock to shift over. <laughs> like, like, you know, there's a there's a time that they know that they're going to release it. So I was in a uh, the parking lot of a of a dry cleaners. when the long list nomination uh, came up but when the short list nomination came a part of it was because one of my very dear friends was one of the other long listers and you don't know how you know I didn't know how I would be like if I didn't get for so you know it's like sitting there kind of thinking to myself like you know you were lucky to even be on the long list you know thinking that to myself and so I was actually out running I just gone to the track and was just running and was not going to check until I was done doing whatever I was doing my laps. That friend of mine texted me and said, and was like, so thrilled for me. Um, and so that was, that was how I got to find out. I got to find out because um, my friend told me. And then after that, I went to the link and, and saw it.
1: When did poetry become performative for you or has it mm. always been?
0: So, you know, like a lot of people, I was introduced to poetry as an oral art form. You know people would recite it in, in elementary school, kindergarten, you know you learned poems and you presented them. And so that sense of, of of poetry as sound was was you know kind of kind of baked in there. But I think that a particular relationship, to sound, body, you know, the presence of the body, um, the tension between the body and typography, like all of those things really began developing, I would say, in the late 90s, maybe 1997 or 98, when I was living in San Diego, um, because I kind of fell in with a bunch of writers who were doing what, you know, people talk about as like spoken word. They weren't necessarily slam artists. But uh, they were doing a lot of this oral performance of poetry. At that moment, there was this tension uh, between the stage and the page. You know, people were suggesting that people who to perform their poetry were not as rigorous writers, and and some of the people who were performing poetry were saying like, you know, this work isn't isn't interested in speaking to other people. It's very elitist. And I just began thinking to myself like, what would happen if we tried to write a poetry that would perform itself on the page. Um, and what's really interesting, and I, you know, David Nayman noted this about the work, is that at this point in my writing, I'm now kind of reversing that, turning the stage into a page, like composing while I'm on stage by interacting or improvising with the audience in different ways. So I would say that in the late 90s, it started coming to me like that. I got exposed to the work of uh, Russian avant-garde painters. And there's this painter uh, called Pavel Filinov who has a painting that is either translated as the German war or the war with Germany. And I remember looking very closely at that work because it's part of a commission to write poems responding to this. And Filinov would paint the human figure, but in sort of like fractalized layers. So you'd have a hand, but then there'd be another hand overlapping that, another hand overlapping that, another hand overlapping that. And so it's hard to tell in a good way Uh, whether or not you were looking at um, several hands piled up or watching sort of a time elapsed motion. And that to me began to sort of chime with something I was thinking about in terms of word sound and typography. And it's absolutely, uh, you know, written in the stars that within a year or so of starting to understand, trying to understand that is when I got, uh, accepted into CalArts with its interest in interdisciplinarity, that you can find it, that historically, you know, you could find at CalArts even when they weren't necessarily a class designed to give it to you. You could, you know, if you had enough, if you had some chutzpah or some good co- con- contacts or, you know, or you were lucky enough to have certain kinds of social skills, you might talk to somebody in another department and learn how to uh, work with typography as graphic designers work with it, um, which just became like something that was really important to me. And, and really helped lead to that. So, I mean, I think that though I applied to CalArts with a couple of pieces of what I tend to call performative typography, like coming here and meeting people like my classmate, Sean D-O, D-E-Y-O-E, um, who was a graphic designer, still is, I believe, you know, I got to talk to him about different things and he showed me different things and kind of said, okay, what you're doing over there is, is nice, uh, but it's kind of like very rudimentary, we want to take a look at these things. And it was like, yeah, just people like Gail Swanland. Like, oh yeah, just so many people.
1: We don't often think about the relationship between typography, graphic design, and poetry. I read show the poem, when you look at it on the page, there's a staccato that you read to it because it's very narrow. It's very crisp. But then mm-hmm. it's a whole new way when performing the poem. Do you try to perform it the same way every night? Or do you rehearse it a certain way, like a theatrical performance? But you also talked about improvising a little. So how does that happen? Like, Do you do it, aim to do it the same way every night? Or do you feel it like a music performer would do?
0: Well, I mean, first of all, the fact that you use theater and music as kind of like these two uh poles of 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 performance is absolutely chimes with the way i oftentimes have thought about it that there is you know a way in which you can try to like of course there's variation in theater depending upon you know how you're performing that night or how a scene partner delivers a line to you but there's also still kind of a band At which, like, you know, you can't suddenly turn it's if you suddenly try to turn a tragedy into a comedy, things are not going to necessarily work. Whereas a musician, you know, has a relationship to time, you know, relationship to pitch perhaps, but you can play with pitch if you maintain a relationship to time, or you can play with time if you maintain a relationship to pitch. With a poem like Show, which is written in a form that a CalArts student uh, a, a, gra- a, gal- a graduate of the MFA program, Indigo Weller, created called a torsion. All of the lines have to have the same amount of syllables. On the one hand, you can think about reading those lines in such a way that you're sort of congratulating yourself, going like, "Look, see, this is five syllables too, and this is five syllables too, and this is five syllables too." But I think that if, for me, if I think about when I composed this the fact that there were five syllables allowed became a part of how the poem navigates some of its emotional shifts, that the five uh, syllable constraint makes it possible to make it clear when the poem is starting to fracture. Um, And so it's not that I practice the poems. I mean, I read my work back to myself a lot when I'm writing it, just to kind of like feel how it's flowing but I don't necessarily feel like I'm practicing that. Today I read um, show to um, Matthias Wigner's class and I felt like it was probably a reading in which I was most clear on the relationship between the five syllables, those line breaks and the emotional language of the poem. And that's something that you know I knew I was doing when I was working on it, but embodying it made. me go like, oh no, I really see it. There's this like, one eye that's reading the poem. and then there's this other one that's going like, yep, yep. That was the first exclamation point. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you did you did a good job. Like, like sort of like doing that. So, you know, I have to respond to, you know, my present state by, by, you know, like if I'm excited, I can be like a drummer who accelerates the tempo a little bit too much. <laughs> could like jump over the line breaks. But when I find myself in a place that I feel really present in the poem, those results oftentimes feel like they let the poem do uh, what it was composed to do uh, most effectively. Uh, but I don't know, I feel like if I practice them, I would not be up there encountering the work in a way. So I think that when people come to a reading, you know, they want to experience the poem in a different kind of time. Then uh, they then they experience it when they're reading it on their own. For me, where improvisation really comes in is the space between the poems, you know, which is to say, when when people do the banter, I try to treat that space as approaching the same. This always sounds like terribly pretentious, and I don't mean it this way, uh, but it's like, what is the consciousness I am in? Gosh, this is so embarrassing. What is the consciousness that I am in when I'm writing a poem? right? Like what makes it possible for me to make certain kind of associations? What makes it possible for me in one poem to be, have a situation and it goes to this kind of dark humor, but in another poem, it might go to a space of kind of pathos. Um, And, you know, all of that stuff is like the compositional mind emotion. So now when I'm at readings, you know, I'm just paying attention to everything that's happening in the room because I want the reading now to feel like it feels to be in making the poem, and so the improvisation usually comes between the poems now. But of course, that impacts the poems, especially if you don't kind of go poem mm. poem 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 banter 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 banter, banter. Poem, poem 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 But if you kind of go like poem 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 banter, banter 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 poem 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 banter, like if all of it's kind of feeding into each other then the poem takes on a different kind of, of mood or idea. Even if you've read it similarly, what you set it up with and what you followed up with then kind of changes it. So I don't know, you know, it's it's so that's kind of a place where, where it goes for me. And that's where I feel like you get that, as you described, right? Like a rehearsed play is still going to have variation. A band might be called to play a song that they haven't rehearsed, right? You know, they're just sort of like, you know, the band leader says, uh. Let's play this song, right? And it's going to sound, it might sound like that song that they haven't rehearsed if they recognize it, know the notes. So yeah, yeah, there's the possibility of change.
1: Uh, the year is um, 1995, or, or pick another year. And I was going to say, what was the younger Doug Kearney watching, listening, reading, or absorbing?
0: Oh my gosh, yeah.
1: You had already touched upon the poets that you're hanging out with in San Diego.
0: Mm-hmm, mm mm-hmm,
1: People, you know, like what they read or see of your work. Um, who are your influences that, you know, back in 95 or the 90s oh, or yeah. that you could refer yeah. people to?
0: I would say um, DJ, initials DJ Watson. Um, she's, she's got some work out there in the world. Um, Donna Watson, but she went by DJ Watson. She has this poem called So What?, you know, based off of the Miles Davis song, but it's also um, dis- the dismissive aspect of that phrase. Um, and there's this, oh my gosh, there's this line that she has in that poem, "Grio gats with gilded gear. It's just like, there's just like this moment, and was, like, like there was a way in which her poems, you can't, I don't want to call it surreal, right? Because that's not exactly it. It was like just a different kind of reality. It was, it was so fluid in culture that we would associate with everything from Black spirituality to Black vernacular, like it was just steeped. And her work was very important to me. The poet Yona Harvey, who I went to undergraduate um, at Howard University with, um, and we're still friends to this day, she is one of my first teachers. I think her work is amazing. Angela Jackson, um, who was, you know, who, who I think is now or was last year, the poet laureate of Chicago. Um, she was teaching at Howard in uh, 1995. I met DJ Watson in 1997, so it was kind of like in that space. Limerick Parks Kamal Daoud, who is is was very important. He had a CD called Limmer Park, which I listened to over and over and over again. Carl Hancock Rux, who has taught at Cal Arts, also came out of that time for me. Uh, so if you're thinking about 90s five through 97. I would put those poets, um, but I would also put rappers like De La Soul, uh, you know, that group, Ice Cube, Public Enemy. Like, I would say that those would kind of be the spread for me at that point.
1: And then, Doug, my last question for you, it has um, more to do with teaching, because you've been teaching a while now at uh, University of Minnesota, before that Cal Arts, and you have encountered a lot of um, students. What's the first thing you tell them when they approach their writing or when they take your class? And, and has it changed over time? Yeah, I think it has.
0: And I think that some of that is because the sort of the culture of the workshop has been changing in ways that I think are really good but have a lot of people, you know, just trying to figure out how to, you know, make, uh, you know, try to create spaces where people can make and make together, even when sometimes people are trying to make very different things. Something that has been constant, I would say, is that, you know, I will say your interests are enough. It can be it can be it, it can be cool to decide, oh, I'm going to read more about metaphysics or I'm going to, you know, uh, you know, talk about uh, chemistry or whatever. That can be cool. That's awesome. But if you're not interested in metaphysics and you know, what you're interested in is, you know, trap music, say, and you're all in on some trap music, then like that's enough. Right? That's enough for you to write and make work from because that is work that is speaking to your time and your moment. And that work will be resonant with that time and that moment. And and I think that that's true. I do think that that's true. And, 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 And I think that that's true in part because that's something that people who care about me had to tell me about my work, that it wasn't, I didn't have to try to do things that other people were doing in the sense of, from a position of like, I don't think my work is good unless I do these things, right? It's one thing to like, you know, Take on a style that you like somewhere else because it's giving you something. But to feel like you're not you're not enough, right? Uh, for this poem, um, is something that I've tried to, to refuse, and to try to to put people, you know, try to put, like take out of people people's estimation of their work. I will say that's something that that I ask a lot: What do you want this poem to do? Or what do you want your poetry to do? What do you want to learn how to do? better through your poetry like and i wouldn't even say better i would just say what do you want to develop what do you want to develop what's a habit you have that you would like to try something different and so it really became much more about you know acknowledging that even if a person isn't coming with certain kinds of poetic jargon or maybe they have the jargon but they don't have a feeling like even if even if they're not coming with what you might consider a whole package (laughs) Right. People know something about their work. Sometimes they might describe something that seems to them, oh, this is just a little thing. But you when you hear it, you're like, oh my gosh, that's like every that's everything. And sometimes people speak about something like it's massive. And you kind of like, oh, you're talking about syntax, right? <laughs> like, and so to me, it's starting from the position of people know something about their practice. They know something about their work. And they are strong advocates for it, even sometimes when they don't think they have the language for it. Now, of course it could be just as destruct- destructive to disbelieve somebody when they say they don't have it as, they, as, as, uh, as it is to, when somebody says they do have it and they don't. So it's not about like not believing that, they, that they're grappling with something, but it is for me about perhaps reflecting their language back to them in a certain kind of way, or that where they can see what it is that I see in their work and what I see in their work as facilitated by what they've already done. And so that to me becomes important. I know that's a jumble of things. I don't know. There might be three words if you stitch them together. <laughs> there are probably a few does. there are probably a few ands. And then you no, just, I, then the I, rest I, is just missed.
1: But Doug, uh, I know you have to do your lecture tonight. So mm-hmm. good luck with that. Thank you and, so much. Um, I watch your career from afar, and uh, very happy for you when you, you got that nomination. Or I see you publish the next book, and and I know a lot of your colleagues and former students and alums are too when they see Doug Cur, Douglas Kearney, sorry, in the um, in the bylines or you know the nominations and all that. So congratulations.
0: Thank you, thank you. And I mean, like, I never forget how important Cal Arts has been to the artist that I am, you know, and, and yeah, this is, this is a remarkable, a remarkable place to be.